This is weird. We've got a sovereign fleet approaching from the rear. Why would they do that? Probably because Rocket stole some of their batteries. Dude! Right. He didn't steal some of those. I don't know why they're after us. What a mystery this is. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of After the Credits, a new podcast in the One Perfect Shot Network. I'm your host, Matthew Monagal. I am both a columnist and the, the host of this podcast here at the website, and I am joined this week by Drew McWeeny. Drew, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you write for, and where they can find your stuff? Sure. Uh, for many years, I was at Ain't It Cool News, and then I was at HitFix, uh, one of the founding partners there. Um, now I am running Pulp and Popcorn, which is an online magazine uh, that is both original fiction and film criticism. And I'm also running the 80s All Over podcast with Scott Weinberg and Bobby Roberts. And that is uh, every two weeks we get together and we talk about one month of the 80s. And we're going in order from January of 1980 to December of 1989. And uh, we're reviewing everything that came out. So uh, those are the two big ongoing projects right now. And then some other stuff is in the uh, in the works. Now, I know I'm not supposed to promote other podcasts on this podcast, but I have to say <laughs> 80s All Over has gotten me through a lot of really long car rides. Oh, thanks, so man. So if you haven't checked it out, if you haven't checked it out, and if you're a fan of 80, an entire decade's worth of movies, you really should check it out. It's good stuff. All right. Well, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And I don't think I need to do a rundown of all the talent involved. I'm pretty sure you guys know it already, but just in case, it's got James Gunn returning as both a writer and director. It also has returning stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Vin Diesel, Dave Bautista, and Bradley Cooper. It has Karen Gillan and Michael Rooker. And it also brings in two new actors, Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell. And I think the place that makes sense to start with this movie is actually Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. Now, Drew, you wrote a review of this movie back in the day, and you had uh, some interesting things to say about it. I, I think it's pretty safe to say that you were a huge fan of this, even compared to some of the other stuff that Marvel had done. Yeah, I, I was. And it, it was a case where I had gone to, uh, to England to visit the set of that. And pretty much by the end of the set visit, I realized they were doing something that nobody else in Marvel had done yet, which is the introduction of the big, crazy cosmic stuff. And that that was always, for me, such a big part of what I loved about comics as a kid. I loved Silver Surfer, and I loved Outer Space comics, and I loved when the X-Men went to other planets. I thought that was one of the things that made comics really great and crazy was they could, you know, encompass anything. And I think, to some degree, comic book movies have been fairly earthbound so far. So it was exciting to me to see them try to open that up, and then to see them rewarded for the gamble they took on James Gunn so completely, I thought was really exciting because that's a case where, you know, nothing he had done before that necessarily screamed Disney or Marvel, but it was a case where the voice was exactly right for the property. And however they saw that happen, uh, they, they really nailed it. So, you know, this is the first time that we've talked about a movie on this particular podcast where I could quote a critic directly at themselves for this preview section. Nice. So, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to talk about you. I hope it's uh, as it is with me, one of your favorite subjects yourself. You mentioned specifically you give a direct call out in your review uh, to Charles Wood, who does the production design. And you make a point, which I think is really good, is that a lot of these movies, um, to quote you, in a post alien and post Star Wars world, it's sometimes difficult to create something that has both that lived in and worn out and well used feel without feeling like you've seen it before. Um, now, the, the trade off here, though, is that this is that we have seen it before. We've already seen Guardians of the Galaxy, and we have 
seeing um, you know their creature designs, their character designs. Do you think there's any chance that that could maybe get a little familiar the second time around? Do you think the strengths can kind of, there's diminished returns in play? I think that's a gamble with any sequel. And I think sequels in general are very, very difficult. Um, you know, I, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. And the difference here this time is that, you know, Nicole Perlman had done early drafts of Guardians of the Galaxy when James Gunn became involved. So there was already some shape to that project. And then James came in and definitely signed it. But I think there were things that were already in motion. And this time, as the writer-director, and he's going to do the same thing on Volume 3, I think he's been given room to really make it his and then follow that story wherever he wants. What I'm curious to see is what that means. What does he want from it? What is it going to be a case of bigger, louder, sillier? Or is he going to actually push these characters to places that become interesting about the characters and remind us of what it is that I think works best in the first film? It's the human connections between even the most outrageous of the designed characters and i i hope that's what this sequel does is it, it goes deeper instead of just sillier and bigger now I, i've read um i read and, and listened obviously to some of the stuff you've done and i think something that you bring to a conversation about the marvel movies is your very upfront fandom having grown up and reading these comic books and things like that the big addition to the cast is, of course, Kurt, Kurt Russell, who's playing Ego, the Living Planet. And I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what that means. Yeah, you know, I've read the same I've read the same news post that a lot of people have as well. But that character to me is a mystery. His relationship with Peter Quill is a mystery. What do you think is the potential for the combination of other than just the alarming amount of chemistry they'll have on screen, Kurt Russell and Chris Pat and, and that father son dynamic in this film? Well, that ultimately, that's that's what this has to land as out. And I think this is a really indica interesting indicator of what James Gunn is all about, because he knows that the the identity of Star-Lord's father is really the one emotional thread that he has left to play that he established in the first film. The stuff between Nebula and Gamora and some of the other characters, that'll un unspool as well. But really, the big dangling question is, who is Star-Lord's father? And he's not using the answer from the comics. He's not doing something that already was written. He really took a different character and then reconfigured this, and he had to go tell Marvel how he felt like he wanted to make it work. So he's doing his own thing, and I, I think that's exciting. But then on top of it, it sounds like he has made it as outrageous and ridiculous a character as possible, and then hopefully that will somehow then translate into a very real earnest, honest, emotional thing that happens between the two of them. And if he can pull that off, balance the absurdity of you are a living planet that can take human form and the very simple, understandable drive of I need to know who my father is and I need to connect to him. If he can balance those two things right, that's kind of awesome. And that that's the thrill to me is can you take the ridiculous and the, the earnest and somehow make them work together? And it's it's something that um, I'm going to quote you at you again. It's it's something that offers this movie sort of a, a I think a variation on a lot of themes that we've seen before in the Marvel movies because what you said in your review um, in a section that you devoted to the criticisms you said that this is sort of a familiar the original Guardians of the Galaxy is sort of a familiar Marvel format and that you introduce a doodad you establish that doodad as doing something powerful everyone chases the doodad around doodad does its thing heroes bad guys light show here's a billion dollars those are yes. your words and i really just wanted to say doodad a bunch because that's what <laughs> word to say. well i think that i i do think that the glowing doodad is a problem in our films right now and it's mm -hmm. everywhere it's not just marvel but everybody every transformers movie is that movie there's 
a dozen. I, the last Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie was that movie. Uh, there's so many movies now where the last act is people running around trying to either get to a rooftop or get to a basement because they have to either turn something on or turn something off. And that shape has become, I think, so numbing to, to audiences that it's really now on the filmmakers to find new structures that they can hang these stories on. And I understand, like you really, ultimately, that is not the thing that you're making the film for. You're not making it for the plot mechanics. You're hopefully making it because you care about the characters. You want to create something that the audience bonds with. So I get that the simple shape of that is something that they fell into, but they got to stop now because it's gotten so familiar and it is so overbearing in how often it's been used. And I, I hope Marvel understands that. It seems like the last few films they've really pushed to try to make sure that they don't fall back into that trap. But they do have, I, I feel like the Guardians of the Galaxy films too do have a little bit of an extra pressure on them, not necessarily as a direct setup for Avengers Infinity Wars, but it's been a long time since we've seen anyone in the Marvel Universe in space. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that there is this space being that's going to be attacking Earth, attacking all of the Avengers, the onus is kind of on, I feel like the onus might be on this film to sort of tie those threads together really quickly before we get to the, the Avengers movie next year. Do you think that there could be, Marvel has suffered from this in the past, we've all read the criticisms, but do you think there's any added pressure on this film to sort of say, oh, here's why Thanos matters and here's why the, the stones matter and let's get all that out of the way too? As I understand, there's actually very little of that in this movie and I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think they've shuffled a lot of the bulk of that to Thor Ragnarok. And I think some of the real okay. setup is going to happen in that film, which is also an outer space adventure. And I think that's one of the really smart things they did was the, you know, the third Thor film was, I don't think, at the top of anybody's list that they were looking forward to until they put that creative team together. And now that they have Taika Waititi behind that, and it sounds like you know that trailer that landed is such a different tone than the first two films. It does feel very exciting, but I think there's a lot of weight on that film to have to connect dots and bring characters back to Earth and tie things together to set us up for what then Black Panther, I think, has to slam dunk the setup for. And after that, I think mm -hmm. that's it. I think we're into. I think we're into Avengers. I don't know what else comes out between now and then. No, I think that sounds right. That's um, an if not, that really is an insane out, so. amount of pressure on those three films because they've got a. We haven't really even seen Thanos as a as a character yet. Right. It it is it is a weird situation for them to have been building, simultaneously building towards this epic space battle that they also realized did not really serve any of their more grounded characters well. In the Captain America movies, you certainly could have written a storyline that had him exploring, you know, extraterrestrial assaults, but. They realized pretty quickly that this was about this character, about his relationships, about his relationship with Bucky in particular. And so they kind of got out of the space game. So you're right to say, I, I you know, th these three films, I won't limit it just to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, but these three films have got to do a lot of plot heavy lifting to get yeah. them up to speed. And it'll be interesting to see how much of that uh, they actually put on James Gunn's shoulders versus well, giving it to YTT. The thing that blew my mind today was hearing there are five credit stingers. There's five. You could get a lot done. You could get a lot of plot done in five credit stingers. If if they use those right, they don't have to do anything else in the movie. They can just kind of push everything into the credit stingers and have a lot of fun with what they are and how little they show. Um, I'm really curious because I haven't heard any reports as to what those are or, or how they play. But I'm really curious to see how much of that is stuff that is for James and for his character work and how much of it is. I didn't have to do it in the movie, but I'll do it here for you. And so I feel like some of it's got to lead us into Thor. 
Some of it's got to sort of play to the larger thing. And then I hope at least one of them is just for Guardians and is really kind of like the Howard the Duck one, which I feel is one of the most absurd ones they've ever done in a movie and one of the most delightful as a result. Now, I, I like that you brought up um, some of those early reports because this is something I try and ask all of my guests. And I think is really important understanding how critics think about movies. You've been at pretty much every level of uh, publication. You've been an editor. You've been a writer. You've done freelance. You, you've been involved in this world for a long time. Do you find now that you seek out sort of those early tweets that break embargo or soft break embargo? Um, do you seek out uh, individual film critics or people whose opinions you trust just to get a feel for what they're thinking about the film? Or do you try and avoid all of that and go in knowing as little as possible? I have a few friends and I'll ask them if they've if they've seen something before me, I might run it by them and I'll see stuff go by. Um, I won't spend a lot of time tracking other people's opinions down before I see something, um, but I don't mind. I'm not like phobic about it. Uh, I just won't read whole reviews. I won't read like in-depth work because I, I want to be able to bring my own reading to a text, my own reaction to things. And, you know, getting a general sense of which way the wind is blowing is fine. Anything more than that, I, I get worried that... I'll be reacting to something and I don't ever want my review to be a reaction to anything except the film. Right. Right. Do you, do you find uh, do you typically watch trailers for big releases? Sure. And I think that's more fun with the kids. Uh, my boys are big Marvel addicts. They've grown up on this and I think it's kind of thrilling to see, you know, my, my oldest is going to turn 12 this summer. My youngest just turned nine. And for them to see how star Wars and Marvel works right now, it's nothing but thrilling for them. They're, they're really excited by all of it. <coughs> Pardon me. No, you're good. I'll cut it out. Yeah. You know, and there's there's a lot more we could talk about with these these characters, um, but I'm sort of inclined to to move a lot of that to the the post discussion because sure. we'll have a chance to dive into sure. to each of them and make it work well. So, Drew, before we part today, I want to ask you uh, on a scale of one to five, going in based only on your expectations, what you know, and what you think you know, what are you what are you inclined to give Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two? I am, I'm going to cross my fingers for at least a four. I really want him to stick the landing on this because I would like to see James not only finish this trilogy out in style, but I would like to see the original stuff that this will enable later. And if he has three big hits that are clearly his, that are his sensibility, I think the benefit down the road for us as an audience is going to be we're going to get original work by him that's going to be so crazy and so much fun. So... I'm really I'm rooting for him. I hope it's his and I hope it is what the audience wants from it. I I love the reasoning on that. And you've given me a good reason to root for the film as well. I'm, I'm going to go lower than you. I'm going to say a three, not because I didn't enjoy Guardians of the Galaxy, but just because there has been so much work done in the franchise or in the Marvel franchise as a whole since that film came out. Yep. You know, from Doctor Strange to the first trailer for Thor Ragnarok to what they did in Captain America Civil War. And I worry that what seemed fresh and exciting based against the baseline of the series up till now might get a little repetitive, might get a little familiar the second time out. So I'm I'm hoping I'm wrong, but I am I was raised to hedge my bets. And so hedge my bets I shall. All right. I'm gonna say a three. I'm gonna say a three and then one of us, I have a feeling, though, that one of us is going to be right, and I hope it's you, because otherwise we'll both be sort of vaguely disappointed. <laughs> well, I look forward to that conversation. All right. I can't wait to do part two of this. It's going to be fun. Now, you're going to see it. You said you were going to see it uh, twice, once with your boys. So yeah. um, we'll be sure We'll be sure to get save their reactions if you can, because I'd I love to hear what they have to say about Guardians of the Galaxy as well. All right. All right. Then we're going we're gonna to meet back up in a couple of weeks, uh, but in your time, we'll be back in just a few seconds. So thank you for listening. 
Well, hello and welcome back. We are ready to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So just a quick reminder to those of you that haven't yet seen the film, uh, we are going to go into full spoilers and full details of the plot. So consider this your fair warning that we will ruin this film for you if you haven't already seen it. So oh, I by hope all so. means, back out if you need to. Yes, yeah, that is, that that is, is what we do. Goal. Drew McWheeney said that he would come on the podcast only if he could ruin Guardians of the Galaxy. So caveat emptor. <laughs> uh, just as a, a quick a quick uh, refresher about the, the storyline, um, it's, uh, it's a nice father-son story. The main focus of this movie is, as I'm sure you've read it in countless blogs, uh, that he meets his father, Ego the Living Planet, played by Kurt Russell. And the Guardians of the Galaxy are tasked with sort of a, uh, you know, whether this is a, a delightful family reunion or whether he's going to try and destroy the galaxy as we know it. Spoiler alert, it's kind of sort of the latter. But let's uh, let's jump into some of the conversation about this. And normally, Drew, my first question is, what were your overall impressions? But I'm not so much worried about that right now. I would like to know uh, what your son's opinion of this was. Tashi and Alan, who you write about a lot in your Film Nerd 2.0 sections and the new book that you have coming out, they've had a chance to see this now, right? What what were their like quick takeaways on the movie? Well, it was it was funny. They actually they they were a little bummed because it's uh, my when I first RSVP'd for the screening, I was going to go see it without them simply because I don't have them during the week, and it's very very hard for me to pick them up during the week and take them to a film and take them home. It's just geographically difficult. So um, sure. they were really bummed, and I ended up talking to their mom about it and making a special effort to to get them and make sure that they got to go with me. And I'm glad I did, because that is such a huge part of the film, the idea of family and what that means and how that definition works and how difficult that definition, that word can be for some people. And um, they both loved it. They had a phenomenal reaction to it. And I think for both of them, there is such a deep attachment to these characters now and sort of an ownership over the idea of the Guardians of the Galaxy and what they are. And um, we ended up playing the Telltale game all weekend as well, the uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy game. And it's just everything to them right now i think it's one of those cases where it happened to me when i was young you don't just like the movie you just want to get lost in the world like it becomes this overwhelming urge and they are guardians mad at the moment well that's great so thank you for joining me this week drew i got what i wanted to know from tashi and alan so we're done here <laughs> perfect no no later. i guess uh, we we can still talk about the movie a little bit so i know when we had when we had um as, as everyone has just heard, we were talking about our impressions of the film. There seemed to be a lot at stake here between James Gunn having his first truly solo outing in the Marvel Universe to Marvel seeing if they could recapture some of the energy and some of the, the different vibe from the rest of their movies that this had. So let's start at that as a talking point. Uh, did Guardians of the Galaxy just rehash some of the stuff from the first movie, or do you feel like they kind of carved out a space in the Marvel Universe that's theirs and theirs alone here? What were your impressions? Well, I don't think it's a rehash. I think that it is very clearly an expansion on things that uh, Gunn felt like the audience reacted to. And it is a really tricky balance when you're doing a sequel because you you lose the element of surprise. And I think what the first film had going for it was nobody had seen that movie before, at least not that way, not in the Marvel Universe and not in a long time. It's there's a special kind of wise assery to that first movie where they almost don't take the film seriously, but they take it just seriously enough, and it's it's a hard thing to get right. So for the the second film, I really did feel like you don't have any surprise on your side. 
So now you've really got to make me care about the world or care about the characters or invest for some reason. And I think what they did so well this time was they gave everybody something to do. They expanded just enough on the world, but they didn't wipe everything away. It's only a few months after the first movie, and it doesn't feel like they they gave into the urge to make this gigantic compared to the first film. It's still a fairly self-contained movie. It's still fairly small scale. And I think that the best thing that you can say about it is it has now convinced me that this cosmic corner of the Marvel Universe is strong enough to support a whole bunch of films, not just Guardians of the Galaxy, but pretty much whatever they want to play with at that end of the, the universe. And I think that the world is rich enough and weird enough the way Gunn has imagined it, that it's going to be attractive to other filmmakers to come and play with those toys as well. Yeah, that's something that I like that you pointed out. Um, I recently, just because I, I have a little time on my hands, uh, got myself a free month to Marvel, their Ultimate Comics, whatever the, the mm-hmm. web platform they have for that is. And I'm really, I'm, I'm surprised every time I dive back into the comic books as a whole, how much of this stuff is weird cosmic space stuff. It really is. Like any opportunity the, that they have, any of their major crossover events, it's Reed Richards in space. Increasingly, it's the Guardians of the Galaxy with them, but it's all the main characters fighting giant space gods. And that has been something that until now has been tough for the movies to translate to because the landscape of, of superhero films is grounded. It's um, certainly character driven. There's been a pushback against these huge stakes of Gal- uh, planet Earth being in trouble. And it's sort of fascinating to me that, that Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I actually surprised myself by really loving, manages to have everything take place in this cosmic galaxy far, far away. And it doesn't feel like it's spreading the universe too thin. It's spreading the characters too thin. You're absolutely right. They really have carved out a spot for themselves. And it's a lot of fun to watch. And it's weird. Now we have, the, um, you asked about the kids' reactions. One of the weirdest things that my kids were obsessed with was who was going to show up in the movie. And in particular, because of the first film, my little kid, uh, Alan, wanted to know if Howard the Duck was going to show up again. And it was all he cared about before the movie. Like, he loves the other characters, and he was excited Baby Groot was back. But Howard the Duck was his big question mark. And when he showed up in the film this time, Alan stood up, pointed at the screen, and went, Howard! And then sat down. And it was this weird, it was this almost chemical thing. Like, I don't think he knew he did it, but he was so excited Howard the Duck was in the movie again. And I really feel like, at this point, they have taken the Lucasfilm uh, Howard the Duck off the table. I don't think little kids at all uh, will worry about that or think about that. If they want to bring the character back, I think they actually did it. I think they laid the groundwork and they could legitimately make a Howard the Duck movie. And I think people would be up for it. That's crazy considering how bad the original is. Now, somewhere George Lucas is listening to this podcast and just a single tear is rolling down his cheek. As he realizes another franchise is lost to the cosmos forever. No, that's 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 right though. That's that's insane. I mean, in this in this landscape of all of these Marvel characters, even though he's had sort of my understanding is he's had a big resurgence in the comic books as as an interesting smart smart Alec yeah. character. He's he's by no means somebody that that anyone like. There's no there. If you'd said five years ago, kids are going to go out and be like, oh, can I get the new Howard the Duck issue at their local comic book store? <laughs> that's that's not a thing. Kids weren't doing yeah. that. And you're right. Like now they are. And now all of these weird secondary characters from a B franchise of Marvel's comic book history are now 
in really high demand. And Baby Groot in this movie destroys. Like everybody uh, is going to grow up of a certain let's, age. Let's and take be a moment just to talk about that that opening title sequence with him. It, by the end of that opening I sequence, I was convinced of two things. A James Gunn is brilliant in one specific regard. He has a phenomenal sense of perspective. Who do you watch during a scene? And he seems to always cut to the right place. And in that opening sequence, to have the entire thing play out in the background behind baby Groot as he's having his own little adventure in the foreground is such a clever way of sort of taking that first film's opening title sequence, which was so memorable and so distinct, building on the idea, but doing it in a very different way so that it doesn't feel like I'm just doing this again. It's a new way to introduce the characters, to see everybody in action, and to establish what Baby Groot does in this world, since he's the new thing. Man, it's yeah, and there were It really is. There's enough of a time gap. I think it's only a couple of months between the two films and in their universe that it really helps to reinforce, too, all of the dynamics. You're absolutely right in saying that because you kind of have it in your head that you know who likes who and which characters have a relationship with Baby Groot. But it was interesting to see that Gamora has sort of a, um, you know, like an answer uncle's concern. She's really looking out for him. <laughs> that still he's, he's still adversarial with Drax, uh, that R Rocket is now in full, like, toddler parent mode. You basically... It, it, that first opening sequence, which is just so memorable to watch and so beautiful to watch, it also gives you all of all of the recap of where the characters are right now and where they're going to be for the rest of the film in five minutes. It's it's a wonderful. And nobody scene. has to say any of it. We just watch it play out. We watch it in the behaviors. His little asides where he like stops and tries to get Gamora's attention with his hello is so funny because she is so sweet to him even in the midst of killing things. And there is there that really says a lot about Gamora and where she has, she is at ended up. Cause I don't think in the first film we see any of that really from her. And in this film, clearly yeah. she has thawed somewhat. And that thaw is a giant character move for her. It leads to Nebula's whole arc. It leads to, there's so much that plays off of each person's place in this, this world and how they're, they're changing. And I, I think that's what's really amazing is 90% of this movie feels like it's just relationship management rather than action, rather yeah. than giant set pieces. And yet it still feels like a spectacle. Yeah. And that was I, I'd heard sort of as a derogatory comment about the film, I suppose, that, that, that it is sort of unsubstantial in the grander scheme of things for the Marvel Universe as a whole, and that it is a very sort of small character play for this $200 million movie. But I, to me, we're going to talk about the father stuff in a moment, but to me, that's actually what set this one apart is I, I yeah. really enjoyed just spending time with the characters. I could, the worst parts of the movie for me were the last 15 minutes when they are in full fledged save the galaxy mode, that first hour and a half of the film, when it's basically just sort of a, a weird road trippy hangout movie among this group of crazy characters, that's the part that really shone. And they could have almost done away with the fight scenes entirely and had just sort of a wacky space buddy comedy could have been uh, Marvel's version of Spaceballs, And it would have been great because there is such a strong understanding of, of who these characters are and where they fit uh, in with each other and where the humor comes from for each of them. I love watching now, but I the way do, I do... any change that the dynamic works, like the introduction of Mantis and seeing what that does to the group, because there's there's nothing that doesn't 
ripple out. There's no there's nothing you can do to the Guardians that doesn't ripple through them as a group. And those ripples are what make the film engaging, I think. And yeah, it's it's yeah. not the Avengers doesn't work like this. None of the group films have worked like this. I don't think any of their movies so far have really emphasized this level of character. Yeah, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of my turn to speak in the movies where you're sort of rotating. There's a group of, you know, the Avengers and all the characters are together. But there's definitely a sense that this is my moment in the spotlight and now I take a step back and somebody else is in the spotlight. And there's there's not any real sense. I mean, for most of the movie, you're following two groups of characters um, in two different sides of the galaxy as their evolving storylines occur. And even among everything that was going on and even among these great characters, it was it was sort of the movie sort of belongs to Yondu of all characters. It's yeah. kind of his film. It's kind of his redemption arc. It's sort of his narrative. And that works. The The two things that I would have said going into this film that frustrate me sometimes about James Gunn are as much as I love Michael Rooker and as much as Sean Gunn can be funny, he tends to push them on the audience in most of his movies. And this was the first time where those two characters, I think, had and their dynamic and their friendship that drives the father-son story between Yondu and Star-Lord, that kind of is the movie and it's kind of the best part of the movie. Kurt Russell yeah. had a movie stolen from Michael Rooker and I'm flabbergasted by that. Well, that's and that that goes to that that sense of love that I think James Gunn has. He loves every character he writes, not just good guys, not just bad guys. He loves all the characters and he is fascinated by them. And I think Yondu benefits enormously from that in this movie. Um and watching Rooker get to play those sides of Yondu, it's just nice because you know that James has seen that in Michael as a friend, but how many filmmakers have ever written anything where Michael Rooker would even get a chance to play that, much less get it written so well that he would crush it? And here's the weird part. I found myself having a strong emotional response to a long conversation between a blue guy with a weird pin on his head, a weird fin on his head that controls a laser pen and a raccoon. And yet, hmm. my God, it's it's you're genuinely invested in it. And the performance level for Rocket in this film, the close-up work on him, the small performance work, the things that sell him as real versus a CG character, expertly done. Yeah. And you're right, because basically since Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Michael Rooker has been a type of character. Even in Slither, he was a type of character. James Gunn's uh, one of his first films. And it's it's really, it's, this is the first time that I can remember in any movie that I've seen him in where he's just acting, where he's just, you're seeing stuff going on that isn't, that is more substantial than just, I am a villain and I must kill everyone. I'm a serial killer and I must kill everyone. And it sort of makes you a little sad for the career that Michael Rooker couldn't have had, could have had if he just wasn't such a scary, badass looking man. And he wasn't so easy to plug into these, some of these roles in Hollywood. Well, and that's that's one of the real failings, I think, sometimes of typecasting is you lose those chances to be surprised by a performer. And, you know, so many of these people are so skilled at what they do that we forget that we're not asking them for their full range. We're, we're putting them in this little narrow yeah. lane. And I, I think Gunn, what's what's wonderful about his sense of humor is it seems to come up from affection. So nobody in the movie is an ass. Nobody in the movie is just the butt of a joke. Um I, I love the way Nebula in this movie even starts to reveal some some sort of humanity inside this weird, crazy, half-robot assassin character. And 
again, he knows how far to push it. He knows how to not layer it on so it feels like he's forcing you to have an emotional response. But he gives Karen Gillan a reason to come back in the film, and he actually lets Nebula mm-hmm. change and grow in some way. Now, let's let's pivot a little bit, too, because I don't want to get too far without talking about um, Kurt Russell's sure. character as well. So starting just we don't even need to talk about it, but let's just say that Marvel is is now climbing out of the uncanny valley. It has reached the other side of the valley and is climbing up the other side with the de-aging process they did at the beginning of the film with Kurt Russell. And maybe it's just because (laughs) my press screening was in 3D. And so it kind of softened the edges a little bit. But I have never seen anything as frighteningly CGI realistic as young driving around in a Corvette, Kurt Russell, at the beginning of that movie. It was I, 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 I feel for actors out there because I'm like, God, we're five years away. We're five years away from just being like Humphrey Bogart and everything. Why not? He's there. We're going to use him. And that was that was creepy. Yeah, there will be legal things that will keep that from from fully happening. But I do think, you know, there's a, an old spec script that was kicking around for years and years that is Disney's tried to make it, I th- think, seriously, like 10 different times with different actors called the Gemini Man. And the whole idea is you've got an older cop who's getting ready to retire and he starts to chase some serial killer and realizes the serial killer is a young clone of himself. And the goal has always been to take an action star who is aged in front of us, use footage from when he was younger to actually help create that younger version and literally have like 70 year old Harrison Ford fight 30 year old Harrison Ford for a whole film. Hmm. And up until now, they've never been able to pull it off. And so they went through actor after actor trying to figure out how to do it. And now I think we're at the point where it's going to happen. And I, I think no, it's no coincidence that they started talking about Will Smith playing it about a day and a half after the first screening of Guardians Volume 2. And you're right. That opening sequence with young Kurt is spooky. And the reason it's so weird is we know what young Kurt looks like. Our eye is completely yeah. used to that. And they get it right. They, I couldn't stop laughing at the feathered hair. Just the hair yeah. on young Kurt Russell is a showstopper like it is crazy how right they get him and yeah when he shows up again and you get a chance to weigh that earlier image against what he looks like right now um it almost in hindsight it becomes like a holy cow did they do that well because yeah it's it's a reminder Kurt, kurt's not a young man now no he's not but i do i do want to go i'm going to go on linkedin and i'm going to figure out whichever artist digital artist it was that just did his hair and I'm going to give him a freaking recommendation. I'm going to say skills oh God, making yeah. Kurt Russell's hair perfect because it is <laughs> it is perfectly coiffed. It is an amazing hairdo. But let's talk about his performance too, because anybody that loves Kurt Russell as an actor knows that one of his most underappreciated aspects of being a leading man is his graciousness. He is so content to let everybody else around him shine, and he's fine being the straight man. He's he's certainly capable of grandiose performances, and I think that Guardians of the Galaxy two is not really one of those. It's kind of a, a not a, in any way a subtle performance, but he is letting everyone around him do some heavy lifting where he just gets to be sort of the swagger version of Kurt Russell. And it feels very intentional to me. It feels like he is in a space where he's collaborating, where he's letting other people have big moments and where he's just content to watch this cool movie roll out around him. What did, what did you think of Russell in the film? Well, I, think he, I think he's keenly aware of his own iconic weight. And I think that that is something that a lot of older movie stars grapple with. It's like, you know, how what was I when I was younger? What am I now? What do I turn into as I get older? And you see guys really wrestle with it and struggle. I don't think he's ever struggled. Kurt has always moved from 
one version of Kurt to the next fairly nimbly, whether it's from the Disney era computer who wore tennis shoes to suddenly being a John Carpenter badass, which happens in the space of five years, which I can't really get my head around, um, or whether it's watching him age and start to realize that now he's the older guy that comes in and plays that, you know, and passes the baton to the younger guy. I love that he knows that he has several generations of fans. I love that he is aware of how we react to him. And so he'll play to that or against it, depending on the film here. It's both. It's when he's first, when he first arrives, it's what we hope star Lord's father is going to be. It's awesome. And both of my boys had a big, big emotional reaction to the scene where they finally get to play catch with one another. And it really got them. They, they love that. And it's because Kurt in that moment, is what everybody idealizes what they want their father to be. He's cool and he's got and he does something and he's and he is what you hope you're going to be. And so when the turn comes and we learn what ego's actually after, um, it's not that it's devastating, it's the disappointment of it plays out really well, I think, in Star Lord. The idea yeah. that he had he was so close, but his mother raised him. His mother is what made him who he is. His mother is why he is human. And whatever ego gave him is not worth trading that. And that that realization, first of all, you want to talk about the music that Gunn uses so beautifully this time. His use of the chain by Fleetwood Mac, epic. Because that is a great yeah. song anyway. And that song has such a crazy history and such a wealth of emotion in it that to use it two different ways in the film, to use it for the fun big sort of exciting version of it earlier and then to land the emotional punch of what the chain is actually about later um that is an expert use of a soundtrack and it's not just jamming hits on to jam them on it's really making sure that that music says something about what we're watching and in some way emotionally becomes tied to that movie i'll never think of mr blue sky the same way and i'll never think of the chain the same <laughs> way and the movie doesn't shy away from that turn either that's that's something that, that's worth pointing out is there are a lot of different ways in which they could have made Kurt Russell's character, Ego, a sort of larger-than-life villain who wants to destroy the galaxy. And, you know, Peter Quill and the rest of the Guardians realize that they have to save humanity, they have to save all the other uh, races in the galaxy, so they turn on him. But in something that I, I honestly thought I would never see in a Marvel movie, what turns Peter Quill on his dad is the fact that he, with no remorse and with absolutely no hesitation, admits to being the one that put the tumor in his mother's head and actually is the reason that she is dead. That is a surprisingly bold movie move for a Marvel movie to make. And it is as soon as, as soon as the words exited his mouth, I thought this is right. Like this is the only thing Peter Quill isn't enough of a heroic character to save the galaxy because he saved the galaxy in that moment. He hates his father. And that was what made the turn work so well as you understood just like in the first movie, that he has to come out of this place of anger and selfishness where he builds to sacrifice in the battle between the two of them. And I, I, I was impressed. I did not think that that would be the beat that they would go for, but they landed it and they nailed it. Well, and I think it also pays the two stories off better as a single story than the first film did. I, I like the first film quite a bit, but I do think Ronan is essentially a tagged on villain who's just there to be a villain. And that's fine. Marvel's always kind of have had an issue with their villains being less interesting than their their heroes. So I was prepared for that. What I wasn't prepared for was how thoroughly James writes the theme so that everything in this movie pays off at the same time. It's not 
several different things that you're juggling that you're trying to pay off. James had one idea and he found a way to express that one idea very clearly through everything that happens. All right, then, Drew, last question for you. On a scale of one to five, what do you give Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? I would give it a solid four. And I think that is, um, for for a comic book sequel, unexpectedly high. And I, I seriously think that as long as James Gunn is given the reins on this, he'll keep delivering movies this good. You know, I, I hate it when I do this because I feel like I do it too much. But I'm going to go right with you. I'm going to give this a four. And that's a surprising score for me as well. I'm, I'm by no means someone who dislikes the Marvel Universe, but I, I thought that I'd seen most of what we could do and most of you know the growth potential here. But this is, to me, this is on par with, uh, with Captain America, the Winter Soldier. I thought this was just a, a wonderfully diverse and fun movie. I thought that the, the themes of parenthood that it hit upon were more moving than anything I'd seen in a Marvel movie before. So 4.0 is the score that I give this one as well. Um, and all right, so that is it for the movie talk, but I'm sure people are going to have questions for you. I'm sure some of our listeners are going to want to reach out and ask you more questions about your fabulous two sons that you're raising as film critics or anything else. <laughs> so Drew, how do, they, how do people get a hold of you? Where do they see your stuff? Well, you can find me at Drew McWeeny on Twitter, D-R-E-W-M-C-W-E-E-N-Y. Uh, you can find me at 80sallover.com, which is the home of my podcast that I run with Scott Weinberg and Bobby Roberts. Uh, you can also find uh, links there for Pulp and Popcorn, which is my um, magazine, which is both film criticism and original serialized fiction. So I'm in a lot of places right now, and we're going to be on Amazon starting in about a week and a half with the book, uh, the first film nerd book, which is called You're Doing It Wrong. That's about the uh, Star Wars series. And I'll also be setting up a uh, place on Amazon where you can get the next book, which comes out in October. And are you still, you had a special that was running on your website. Are you still doing that uh, first 500 very, right now? Yeah, we're very close to the end of the pre-orders. Uh, the okay. people who buy the first 500, you get a signed copy. And you will also get a second bonus book, which will only be printed for the first 500 people, in which Toshi, my oldest, is going to pick his 20 favorite films. He is hard at work on that right now. And uh, it's going to be very interesting seeing what he does, given the room to just rant on his own. Uh I'm as excited about that as I am about anything. So in a couple of years, then we'll have Toshi on as a guest and we'll talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 4. There you I'm go. Looking forward to that. That should be fun. As for myself, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Labslice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. And if you're interested in some of the past episodes we're doing in the podcast, you can find us on Stitcher or iTunes at One Perfect Pod. Please be sure to give us uh, some feedback, leave us a review, send us an email. We love hearing from the listeners and we love hearing what you think of the movies that we talk about. So Drew, thank you so much for joining us. I had a blast and I hope to get you back here again soon. Thanks, man. 